Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day to gather in your name, in your house, with our brothers and sisters under the sound of your word and to sing the truth from scripture and these hymns. Lord, we have everything we need and so much of what we want. We ask that you will give us what we need today uh, to be able to listen with open ears and an open heart to ways in which you may have us change according to your word to be more like you and less like ourselves. We ask your blessing on our country, our culture, really our world. We ask that uh, we not only be salt and light in our witness, but Lord, that within the church we would continue to make disciples, to multiply ourselves for the work of the kingdom. Lord, I ask that you take the time we have gathered together and meet with us here, that we wouldn't take for granted that you would do such a thing or that you would inhabit the praises of your people, but Lord, that you would so work in our hearts that they would be a place inviting to you and again that you would be glorified we ask all this in your precious name amen well it's good to add my welcome as well thank you for being here and uh, as always those that are watching at home we're glad you're here with us as well and I'd like for you to turn with me, invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read a passage of Scripture there in just a few moments. And uh, we'll continue with what's been a loose-leaf series of four messages. We get back to the Gospel of John next week, and I'm certainly looking forward to that. But for the past three weeks, I've done something that I don't typically do. I don't typically deliver topical messages, topical messages where you wrap Scripture around a topic. Usually we start with a passage of Scripture and wrap it around ourselves and the world. And uh, today uh, we're going to do just that at least one more time. And uh, that is because I do think that it's important at times when it calls for it to go to our scriptures, to go to the Bible, and to ask our questions. When we're asking big questions, we, we ask the scriptures. So three weeks ago, we talked about how in the middle of a world that seems to have changed overnight, what's the same within the church? And what should we be doing with our, our time? And then over the past two weeks, we looked at the problem of, of evil, and how that translates to the problem of pain, we talked about natural evil that men are not directly connected with. We talked with about moral evil, where that is our fault and we're involved in it. Well, today I've decided to just kind of throw everything else I had <laughs> on the desk when putting the other three together and then put this. This is, uh, I guess, uh, as good a place as any to ruin a message. This is leftovers. Um, but really, it has to do with the method that we've been hearing and listening and communicating um, over the last six months. It's not new to the last six months. It's just that we've 
been in our homes and restricted to that type of thing more so than ever. So the title this morning is Polarized, Politicized, and Digitized. And part of that's just me with uh, my sense of humor and making fun. But let me address at least the three of those what I mean by it. Then we'll read a passage of scripture and break it into pieces. And then some practical application and, and we'll have spent our time. But as far as polarized or polarization uh, of, our, of our culture, that usually has its own political context. And our government is basically a two-party system, though we've had a third here and there. But to say that our nation is polarized would be to explain the way our nation is separated or our citizenship into two camps uh, separated by their respective values and issues. This isn't meant to be a high school government class, but that's basically the way it works. The trouble with it, though, is the separation of our polarization has always been difficult. It's hard to put together a poll and, de and decide, okay, our country is this far apart over the issues, or they're kind of together on the issues. Because the way you'd go at figuring that out is asking questions like, all right, let's decide about this party and how much their heart is warmed by the way that party's handling those issues. And then the opposite, how cooled or cold their hearts are at how the opposing side is. It's just, it, it's kind of a fuzzy issue. But I think it's safe to say that we've, we're more polarized than we've ever been. And if you just use the, the uh, traditional identifiers of blue and red, and there's always a, an overlap of the blue and the red that makes purple, right? We've got less purple than we've ever had before. But that's basically the, the point of polarization. We've pulled those, those extremes so far apart that what, we, what politicians used to focus on, the folks in the middle... Uh, there's less and less to focus on, it seems. And it used to be that you'd hear that one party's disagreement over policy issues was basically the, the size of the discussion and that certain uh, dialogue and political discourse was like, well, here, let me tell you that they are going to do things different than the way you would do them. That, that's the way it used to sound, and that's somewhat healthy. It's better when we're discussing things and hopefully it, it makes us all stronger and it drives the whole uh, political system. But these days you're more likely to hear each side shouting their confidence that the other side is going to destroy the nation as we know it. That's actually the words they use. Now, in the sandbox we would use Destroy is like to describe, you know, like rocket launchers and uh, battleships and, and, and all that type of thing. I, I refuse to believe that either party gets up in the morning wanting to destroy our nation. But that's the terms we, we put it in now. So winning a seat in government in a polarized environment requires more of an attack strategy rather than the skill of, of uh, well, just good old persuasion to persuade you that this is the way that something should be or could be. The majority of the ads <laughs> are negative, aren't they? Um, 
experiment if you got your kids in the room it's always fun all right let's see negative or positive talking about the opponent or themselves any new ideas did you learn anything from that ad or did it just make you aggravated and there's one poll that's real easy to figure out and it's always the same people don't like negative ads but that's basically what it takes in order to get ahead that's polarized then there's politicized that's the action of causing an activity or event to become political in character and that's basically just to say the list of issues that may have been considered political have multiplied exponentially over the last few election cycles it used to be just a handful of things we figured were political stuff and uh, that was war and taxes and labor and education and, and things like that. Well, add to that list. Those things have to share the list with, with newcomers. Like in the environment, sports. Who would have ever thought sports would have been, become political? Clothing or food or drink. What size drink you could have. How much sugar is too much in it. Natural disasters, viruses, masks. On and on. They, they, they've all got their political value now political footballs as some describe them so in such an environment it's possible that in just everyday conversation you are liable to stand or step on any landmine whether you realize it or not here's what uh, one writer had said I, I, I like I like the way he put it and that's the difference between just politics and politicizing certain things. He says, politics is important. Political decisions have consequences. And passionately arguing for your preferred political outcome is nothing to be ashamed of. I wholeheartedly agree. He says, though, a politicized life is a different beast, however. It treats politics as a zero-sum game or a form of total warfare in which the other side must be obliterated. It alters every aspect of your being, where you shop, what you watch on TV, what sorts of music you listen to, who you associate with. If you're not with the politicized being, you're against him. And if you're against him, he's well within his rights in his mind to ruin you personally and economically. You, the political other, are a leper to be shunned. And I'm sure you probably unknowingly stepped in the wrong spot with a politicized person before. Um, and I don't understand why it is. Because it's clear in just reading or listening, everything is politicized and most Americans don't like it that way. So that's two things that we don't like about where we are right now. Now here's another one. This is digitized. And uh, this has to do with what you've probably got in your pocket and hopefully is silenced. Uh, more than a decade, or for more than a decade, the mobile internet has been steadily replacing newspapers, magazines, television, radio, and even its predecessor, the desktop version of internet access. If you just look at a graph over the last 10 years, it's climbing, the rest of them are falling. That guy who decided to pioneer the smartphone really saw down the road 
that the rest of us perhaps did not. But by all accounts, the time we spend attached to our digital device is growing, and most of us admit it's not a good thing. But we are. Uh, last year, both Apple and Google unveiled features to help users use less of the phones they sold them by monitoring or restricting the time spent on them. Do you remember with the update, if you have the iPhone, I don't know anything about the Android, but it was the screen time thing. And it'll show you every week how much you've used. It's an awful, it's like going to the doctor and finding out you're way worse than you thought you were. Um, and I looked at mine when I was writing all this down. Um, it's about three hours a day with about 100 pickups. And most of the things responsible for me picking up my phone at the top is messaging. And then it's uh, calls. And then after that, it's YouTube. And that's because it's playoff hockey. It wasn't like that a few weeks ago. And then underneath that, you've, you've got others that don't get picked up very often. Or the timer that I use to make sure I don't go too long on Wednesdays when we're Zooming together. But average phone use, 3 hours and 15 minutes. Heavy users are between 4 and 5 hours. Um... And what I thought of when I was going through this, before we read this passage, that was a gradual change, I do believe. All of those things put together. But this last one, I think, may have more to do with the other two than we'd like to admit. The digitizing has to do with the polarizing and the politicizing. I'm not a scientist in that realm. I, I know languages and biblical texts. But when we were kids, we had one phone in the house. And uh, it was in the house we spent 10 years in 86 when we moved to Virginia. And then while I was away at college, the house was sold and came back to a different one. But that's where I grew up. And the phone was in this uh, kitchen. And it was, a, it was called a galley kitchen. You know, it, it's got doors on both ends and cabinets on both sides. It's got a window usually where the sink is and then the stove's on the other side. And one of the most common comments when people came over to my mother was, how can you do anything in such a small kitchen? Mom did quite a bit in that small kitchen. She took very good care of us. But in the back of that kitchen on the wall was the phone. It hung on the wall near the door with a spring on it into the formal dining room. Some people don't know what those are anymore. We didn't have much use for it then anyway. But what we would do, if you needed the phone, you ha you were, that was kind of the central place in the house, and it had a cord that might stretch six feet away. We got a better cord later. It was about 12 feet. You could get to the refrigerator on the phone. But it was just one phone. You could use it one person at a time. And there was this thing that my dad would do, and usually it was a it was a tip-off to the rest of us. It had been a tough day. He'd come in and unplug that long cord and let it fall to the floor and then take the handset and sit it on the little hook part at the top. What was that called? Taking the phone off the hook. And then it wouldn't ring anymore. Now, if you didn't unplug it, it'd do that, you know, and you'd have to fix it. But my father said it at one point, and, and it wasn't something he ranted on. I don't know if he said it a half dozen times I ever 
knew him. And it was usually the people who would ask about it. But he said that the phone on the wall down there is for our convenience, not for others. And for a pastor to say that, some might think, I don't think a pastor should ever say that ever. You have to remember, I grew up the son of a pastor in a pastor's home. But this was three decades ago where we didn't have a phone in our, our pocket. And it was necessary at times to have a meal undisturbed with your family. Not only are we never undisturbed, we don't have meals with our families anymore. Most of us. And he'd plug it back up later. And before that sounds awful, define the words convenience. It's for his convenience or their convenience. Needs were different. And you'd pick up the phone for needs. That was before you could, before you had caller ID too, which ruined a lot of fun little kids used to have on phones, you know, <laughs> crank calling or whatever else. It was just a different type of time, wasn't it? And I wonder if the trade-off had to do with our over-connecting ourselves to one another in a different way that maybe isn't as natural as we might think it is. We are more connected than we've ever been, but we spend less time face-to-face -face than we ever have. And if... You remember the, the first kind of test case for this... Uh, idea of spending our lives distance from one another face to face it was called road rage that's where normal civilized human beings get into a, a, a metal capsule and run each other off the road and gesture to them showing them their IQ level and all these other things that you'd wonder they would never do that face to face well there's some kind of distance it's a dehumanizing effect so ramp that up to the, the place where we live now, and I, I think we need some help, is what we need. So let's read that passage in 1 Thessalonians, and then we'll pray for help. And we'll make a few little points, and we'll be done. But this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this is verses 9 through 12. And the whole context is love. Christ-like love, which is necessary for any church and any child of God. Verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 4. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So they've already been through those lessons. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And we should have been, and that is clear. Verse 10. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, so this is something in addition to their love, brothers, to do this more and more, 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's Word. Let, let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help to understand your Word and have it speak to the place where we live. Lord, I ask that you allow us to submit ourselves to you and your Word and to help us think biblically, theologically, and Christ-like. Speak to us today. Be our teacher. May we be your student. We ask this in your name.
Amen. Well, you could take what he has said here, if the context is love, and he's commending them for their love in the first few verses, and then he tacks on to the end of it in verses 10 and 11 and 12, this idea of quiet and minding one's own affairs, working with one's hands for the purpose of a witness to outsiders and their own well-being and dependency. Let's just call the first part of it quiet love. To aspire to, aspire to live quietly. And we'll, we'll, add, we'll go ahead and add mind your own affairs. And if, if you're reading First and Second Thessalonians together as letters written by Paul to a specific church that he was very uh, involved with but away from at the time. There's a lot of problems he's going to address in Second Thessalonians and this seems to almost be in anticipation of that. Because later in that letter, he's going to talk about how this loving church, however, seems somewhat adrift, um, lacking purpose in specifics. He describes them as idle and lazy and busybodies. I don't know if you want to attach any of those stickers to 2020 or not. Lazy, idle, busybodies. But we'll just hear him out. He leans in on this teaching of love and he basically describes a calling to his readers in aspiring to live quietly, minding their own affairs. So what we're going to boil this down to is that Paul sees Christian love in many ways, but at least in this one way, he sees Christian love as quiet love that avoids meddling and disturbing the lives of others. But before you go, all right, I, I got the phone story. Is this all about me not calling your house? No. This is, th th this is about an, an, an attitude that's been growing over decades that we better figure out as Christians. Or we, just like our culture, are going to be more and more distant from one another. More and more nitpicky and meddling minding other people's businesses from the distance that we have between them, which really robs us of the meaningful conversation about those differences. This quiet life that avoids making difficulties for others seems quite the opposite of the individual that seeks to make his or her voice known at all costs, which seems to be the major identifier of our American culture. But let's put this in question format. Sometimes that helps. Um, it can help us think in different directions. What would America today think of a life that includes space for thoughtfulness and prayer? What would they think about a schedule that actually had some margin in it? Some space to maybe be alone or to be quiet or to read or learn something. What about a life content with an occupation that few considered glamorous, but that allowed for provision of one's family and good in the world? I don't think they'd write much about it. It certainly wouldn't be on the evening news. More people are doing less things, earning less money, but are a lot happier and take care of their families and do good stuff. That's way down the list from this guy said that and now he's fired. What about this? Maybe more scandalizing of any of the rest. What about a woman who would give up her career prospects to nurture the precious souls, souls of her children in their own home 
And to top it all off, isn't bothered by the scorn or self-centered society that would think that no good. I'd be a dangerous person, wouldn't I? Well, what about this scripture? What would the world think about this sermon today? <laughs> about a guy 2,000 years ago who'd have the audacity to call on God's children to mind their own business. I don't know what they'd think of it. But I think we're allowed to infer that Paul was correcting some of the members of his young church who were quick to point out the errors in other people's lives. They also had another problem, and that was demanding that other people liked the same stuff that they liked or thought was important, spiritually speaking, but really didn't have a lot to do with the gospel. That's another sermon for another time, but Martin Luther had this to say about both of those situations. He said, they have the notion that they must control everything and superintend and criticize what others do. These are malignant persons. They stir up nothing but mischief and have no grace to do anything good, even though in other respects they have excellent gifts. For they do not use their talents in their calling in the service of their neighbor. They use them for only their own glory and advantage. Some of that fits. Some of it's for Second Thessalonians. But worth mentioning. So this Pauline, that means Paul wrote it, this Pauline MYOB, mind your own beeswax, right? Is by no means an excuse to neglect the needs of others. Just read the rest of Paul. That's not what he's saying. Alexander McLaren said, nothing dries up sympathy and practical help more than a gossiping temper which is perpetually buzzing about other people's concerns and knows everybody's circumstances and duties better than their own. That type of attitude that you can access just by the 24-hour news cycle is the one thing that I think dries up any goodwill and compassion and sympathy. Like a sponge. But on the other hand, you'd probably all agree... Those who are most closely engaged in meeting real needs, you know, the physical, emotional, and spiritual ones that, that you can wrap your hands around, are least bothered by individual differences and easily overcome those things under the spirit of what Peter would call the, 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 the uh, washing away the multitude of sins, covering them. How does the statement go? The, the biggest complaints always come from the cheapest seats. It's usually the way that works. So that's a quiet love. And, and kind of overlapping some of this next one already. Busy love. He said you need to, to work. Work hard. That's To say to work with your hands without doing much damage. Because uh, he's not saying quit the office, go farming. She's saying work hard. In addition to living quietly and minding their own affairs, these church members were to work with their hands so that they can walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. So, although this verse has played a role in developing a Christian work ethic, that, that's one thing it can be used for. I think probably better for us today is just knowing the, how the example of the man who wrote it underscores what he's actually saying. Uh, Paul the Apostle worked hard. 
the, the hands that wrote what we're reading here had calluses on them. Um, Paul wasn't the pastor who you wouldn't ask, hey, could you go get me the Phillips head screwdriver? You know, some of them you can't ask that. They don't know what that is. <laughs> right? He, he knew what that was like. He knew what it was to sweat. He worked two jobs. And then he wrote how that churches ought to pay their pastors, and then he never took a paycheck. Uh, this, was a, this was a radical type of a guy. But he was not dependent on anyone. And any of the outside world that wanted to know more about this fellow who has all this to say, he was pretty much just like the rest of them. He worked hard. He kept to himself. He preached the gospel like no other. The parable of the talents kind of helps with this too because Jesus clearly in that parable shows that we're supposed to be working and working for a return. And if we've worked hard and profitably at what the Lord has given us to do, He will respond, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in something small. I'll put you over something big. Not to enlarge your coasts, but just because you're a faithful servant. And that's commendable. And then Paul gives two reasons why they should do this. They should do it either way, but these support his thinking. One is that you may walk properly before outsiders. I like the word properly there because anything that isn't proper about a Christian's work is only going to serve to be a stumbling block whenever it comes to witnessing. Nobody wants to know your Jesus if you cheat them in your dealings. It's an absurdity. The idea of under-promising and over-delivering should be... Uh, something every young man and woman is taught. And if they find out that you're a Christian, they won't be surprised. You'd hate for that to be the other way. The second reason is not to be dependent on anyone. And this is just that the church has been since her birth the hands and feet of Jesus that does a lot of good and helps in so many ways benevolently I think that fly was buzzing around my face. Got into my mouth. What he's saying here is uh, help pull the wagon. Don't ride it. And there may be times where you need to ride. Everybody will at some point. But we need more people pulling it. And for the glory of God. So we can continue to be a help where we need to be helpful. So that's his reasoning behind these things. And that all adds up basically to a winsome love. Uh, that seems if you boil it all down by the time he comes to the end of his conclusion. And connected with other things that he's written. It's obvious that Paul considered the love of God at work in his people to be an important witness. And may therefore conclude that he's urging these Christians to increase their love that's not only quiet and busy, but full of the gospel witness. If we were to turn over to the letter to Titus, you don't have to do that. And we've studied it together. But just let me read this to you. He's talking directly to the head of the church there. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. 
And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame. You know, not openly, shame on you. He'll feel the shame because he has nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. And we've got more to make sense of that as an employee-employer relationship today. That'd be the closest trade-off. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And here it is. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, to make it attractive. That's the, that's the point of this. You know, we can just jump in the ring of the culture we know as it is and just become one of a thousand shouting voices that no one's listening to. Or we can be different than all of them and stick out like a sore thumb for the glory of God. Clearly, Paul does not mean to be an island to yourself or to go live under a rock. Just read the rest of his writings. It's not what he's saying. But you do get the distinct impression that he considers working hard, providing for your family, caring for the body of Christ is a life well lived. And it may be in an environment like this that sometimes that quiet faithfulness might be the most revolutionary thing Christians could ever do. Think of that. So here's some practical suggestions. And uh, there's four of these. that will lead us to our concluding hymn and, and benediction. But uh, a lot of this, most of it, is from thoughts of others that I've gathered. Um, but I thought it's been helpful the last few weeks to at least put together some, some practical thoughts. Number one. Don't lose sight of the one calling we've been given. And that is probably the underlying purpose of all these messages, all four of them. Uh, it, it'd be easy to get distracted from what we're, we're supposed to do if we don't get anything else done. Um, Luke 24 and Acts 1 spell it out plainly. plainly. Both of those are, are written by this, the same author there, but have to do with Christ's last words to his disciples and it's basically be witnesses and make disciples be witnesses of what you've seen and heard me do preach repentance of sins preach that I was was killed and and rose the third day preach that you can be forgiven that, that that's being the witness and then multiplying oneself that's disciples and when that worked out through the mission of the church, there was a lot of teaching the word and there was a lot of preaching Jesus, but it was very basic. Be witnesses, make disciples. And that's over against so much of what we've said already. We're finite people with finite time, with finite resources. We need to stay committed to the ordinary means of grace. The Word of God, the ordinances here in the church and prayer, those things that if nobody else does them, they won't get done at all. If we get too busy for church, who's going to do it? If we don't preach the gospel, who's going to preach it? If we get ourselves so mixed up in small things that in and of themselves are good, but we can't get on the same sheet of paper, who's going to be the body of Christ? 
We're not going to do well with a bunch of splintered little small churches for every individual little group and the way they like exactly what they like. It'd probably be better to just boil it down to the only thing the Bible told us to do to start with and kind of limit it to that, but get it done and faithfully. Or nobody's going to do it. The world doesn't care because they not only don't know the Lord, they hate Him. And a lot of times that comes right along as hatred to us as well. But we'll have to make sure that we do not lose sight of what we're actually called to do. Number two, be careful we don't make good things for us required good for everybody else. At Word of Life, we had required fun sometimes. And I didn't like that because it, it wasn't fun to me. And you know, the first day in class when you get your new professors, you find out how they like to do stuff. And some of the professors, especially the ones that tell you how to do what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life, there's a lot of room in there and how it's done. And some will take what's good for them and make sure you know that it's that good or you don't pass the class. Might be getting into the weeds there. But we like to do this. I'm going to read directly from Kevin DeYoung because I'd rather let him say what I'm about to say than to say it myself. He's only a year older than me. But he's got eight kids and they've got one on the way. So he's got a few irons in the fire. But here's what he says about being careful not to make things that are good for you, uh, good for everybody and demand it that way. He said, your passion may be for adoption or eradicating racism or ending abortion or for clean water or for criminal justice reform or for a thousand other good things. But not everyone will be into the same things as you. We must allow for others to have a different sense of calling on their lives. Even a quick scroll on our social media feed can be overwhelming. There simply aren't enough hours in the day to do everything we're told we must do. I refuse to believe that obedience to Christ requires a 35-hour day. I have to attend to my primary vocation, which is to first be a happy and holy follower of Christ, then to be a husband and father, and then to be a faithful pastor, and there are actually quite a few more hats that I have to wear as well. We should feel guilty for disobeying the commands of Scripture. We should not feel guilty for not living the life someone else wants us to live. I think that's a good word. Number three, remember the online world is not the real world we live in. And I, uh, I, I put this in here for all the younger folks that don't know what it's like to have grown up with one phone in the house hanging on the wall in the kitchen. But it is a different world. And when younger people say you need to do something, whatever that something may be, they are often thinking about doing something online, which is making a statement, joining a hashtag, posting some symbolic gesture. That's doing something. And it is doing something. That's, it's not nothing. But there's so many other things that are doing something too. And you want to you broaden your dimension. Praying is doing something. Educating yourself is doing something. Raising kids to love God and love His Word is doing something. Doing sacrificial things in secret nobody knows about but the person you did it for. That's something. Correcting and encouraging others in private, face to face that you know and love and care for, that's doing something. Teaching and preaching and praying in public is also doing something. Being salt and light in the workplace is doing something. 
We should not think that the digital world is the only one that counts or is the one that's important or most important. Remember, we've never been more connected, but we've never been less face-to-face. Trade some of that. And then number four, search your heart and check your head before speaking out or keeping silent. A gut check would be helpful. And it's true that the world wants quick, immediate, now. And we've got all of that in our pockets, on our phone. And that just seems to be the push. You know, if you want a virtue signal, identify yourself with whatever, you'd be the first to do it. Be up there, top of the feed. First one to react. But in general, I think slow's better. I'm not going to build my house as fast as I can. I don't raise my children as fast as I can. They're growing, I feel like, as fast as they can. You wouldn't want to build a church or, or, or... Would you ever want... Could you ever actually build mature Christians in training in a church that works any faster than you would raise your own children? Would we want to do that? Something is cheapened when that happens. Everything that I've got that's worth anything at all didn't come out of a microwave. It, it, it took time. Some investment. Got used to it. Some of my favorite shirts I've had before my kids were born. They've got holes in them. A few of them, right? And we'll throw each other's raggedy shirts away sometimes and get in trouble, won't we? Or who was that guy that was joking about how some of his favorite t-shirts smelled like pledge? <laughs> and and wondered, wondered why. But there, there's nothing wrong with going slow. And slow is important for at least two things. One is for your head. Have I thought this through? Do I know what I'm talking about? Do I really believe what I'm about to say or sign? And it's also good for your heart. Am I speaking or keeping silent out of love for myself or love for others? Would I say what I'm about to say if the opposite side of the argument loved it and my side of the argument hated it? Probably not. Am I seeking to build up the body of Christ? Am I speaking the truth in love? Am I just wanting to be heard for the sake of being heard? So that's the end of my notes. And I hope that some of this has been helpful to you. Most of all, an understanding of that passage of Scripture, which seems to, to hold in high regard a life well lived as quiet and busy, but done well in front of the eyes of those who we'd like to lead to the Lord. And being able to depend on ourselves and the Lord first, and then others second. We're going to sing a hymn. This is how we're going to conclude today. And I'll come back and read a benediction. But this is God of grace and God of glory. I want to read to you because so many times we sing through a hymn and it, it's just like uh, you know, driving home after work and you get to the house and you don't remember taking the left or the right or the stoplight or anything else. It's kind of automatic. Here's what this hymn says. When we get to this verse, hopefully we'll think it through. Cure thy children's warring madness. Bend our pride to your control. Shame our wanton selfish gladness. 
rich in things and poor in soul. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, lest we miss thy kingdom's goal. Lest we miss thy kingdom's goal. Let me pray for you and we'll sing. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth and its guidance. Thank you for its wisdom. Thank you for each other to hold us accountable. Bless your word today. Bless our singing as we consider these things back to you. Thank you for our time together in your house. We ask this in your name. Amen.